Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Ember, a trio featuring saxophonist and trumpeter Caleb Wheeler-Curtis, bassist Noah Garabedian, and drummer Vincent Speranza. Their latest album, August and March, came out August 11, 2023 on Imani Records and is, quote, a vivid representation of the musical, interpersonal, and community-oriented ideas that the three forward-thinking musicians that make up Ember care deeply about, end quote. Today's conversation explores the heady thematic elements of Ember's music, humanism, community, place, and the importance of being a band of equals. Stick around after our discussion to hear the track Flotation Device and the Shivers from August and March by Ember. Well, thank you guys for making time. I can't believe I, I to wrangle three is very special. So thank you so much for making that happen. I very much appreciate it. Oh, thanks, right? Oh, please. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time with the new record and we'll definitely talk about that, the music itself in a few minutes, but there were some themes that come up repeatedly when I read about actually each of you individually. And then what I would call like your artistic statements around Ember in the promotional material on your website. I was hoping maybe to explore some of those themes, ones that that came up for me and that resonated and, and sort of dig into some of that with you all, if I could. I think the overarching theme that I came away with was um, very much a, a humanistic. You seem to be very concerned with people. I don't want to say the material experience, but the experiences of people and between people as opposed to worrying about some kind of romantic, metaphysical, existential <laughs> element of, of experience. And I, and I sort of throw this out there for whoever wants to jump in first. What is that rooted in for the three of you? And what's the experience of finding sort of a team of people that are like-minded like that? And by the way, did I pick up on the correct thing? I think you did very much. Yeah, on something very important to us. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Said a lot of stuff in there. I would say that I think one of the first ways we bonded, either personally or musically, was just talking about musicians we admire and their stories. And we quickly found that the stories of the people, I think, is what really like glues the whole thing together. The recordings are one thing, but trying to get a sense of who the musicians are and were and what kind of world they lived in and have conversations around that. I think that really inspires us together to play and get excited and to share photos and stories and, you know, context for how we got to where we are today. I think that's the first way the sound of the music is a consequence of the people that made it. Mm. Right. It's not something that exists on its own without them. It can be easy to get into a situation where we describe the way the music sounds and separated from the context of the people that made it. So I think that's where it starts for us. What's the risk or what's lost when we don't have that context or when we separate that context? Well, we lose meaning. 
we definitely lose that human element, like what you said. Which is the meaning. I mean, there's so many ideas floating around this conversation right now. That was such a great question. Humans make meaning and humans make music. I write this blog on Substack about, about drummers and mm-hmm. it's a big part of my professional life, if we can talk about it that way. But I love nothing more than finding these connections between seemingly disparate scenes, maybe entirely different genres from unwritten blues to jazz or even within jazz from somebody who's thought to be a straight ahead player to somebody who's thought to be a modern avant-garde player. Very often, it's the point of connection as a drummer. A drummer will be the person that connects these disparate scenes or these disparate genres. After writing about this, for I've now been putting stuff up for about nine months. Somewhere in the last couple of weeks, and really just the most obvious thing finally struck me, which is that these are just human connections. That's all we're hearing. Right. These are humans. It's just this person plays with these people. This person then goes, plays with those people. It's all just people, which makes it both more exciting and much less, and not less exciting, but less, it gets to the truth of the matter, which is that it's people. It's just humans relating to other humans. A group of people make music. That's humans relating to each other. Music enters the world and humans relate to that. It's just people. And there's this wonderful experience called music mitigating, if that's the right word, mitigating how we all relate to each other. Yeah. It just, it basically just draws us together. That's all it does. Yeah. I think the other thing that it does is it, it helps us tell the story or understand the story in a more realistic way. And a lot of times, if we don't tell the story of the people, instead we spin a narrative that is a line of their music or their output. And the story of the people is way more complicated and way more interconnected. And has way fewer boundaries than the narratives that are spun. There are clouds instead of lines, and they're not sequential. They don't make sense in the way that a narrative has to make sense for a film or something. They don't make sense in uh, 10 pages, right? They're, there's a cloud of, Amer- like, in our case, in like of American music experience. Recently, we ran across a photograph of Ross on Roland Kirk sitting in with Frank Zappa. Oh, and it just is like, well, this is a cloud of musicians, like all just running into each other. This was big in our <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a big deal for us. Yeah. But uh, but it just is more evidence that the thing is cloudy and interconnected, and these branches are not separate from each other. They're very interwoven. And I think when we talk about people, we get to that. Something that strikes me about all the notions that you guys have articulated so far is that there's one way to experience that, if you'd let me say it as like, you know, like a a music fan, a nerd, a music nerd, like the finding those connections is fun. And like, you know, the Roland Kirk, Frank Zappa thing, I totally get that. Like finding these disparate heroes or people that you love, you know, when somebody plays on an album outside their genre, whatever it is, it's fun. But then you also realize They're in multiple overlapping communities. There's the community of show business and parties and events and awards and places where show business people see each other. There's the arts community where 
players go play and talk and meet and you're having a drink with another musician and they say you should meet my drummer friend and all of a sudden there's what do musicians do they say let's get together and play like so you're right those contexts are they're very organic in there but they're not always readily apparent especially in the world of genre oh i i love that i completely agree with that lawrence i think when we listen to music or watch videos of older musicians especially there's so much like folklore and history in this music and I think a word that at least I use a lot to describe musicians is like special or magical, maybe growing up and you listen to John Coltrane on a CD or whatever. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. Like, how did he do that? It's so special. It's so magical. And it is special and magical. But then when you talk about Coltrane, for example, or any of these musicians in a more humanistic way, there's like a whole nother side of them that opens up. And you realize that they're just another figure in their community and in multiple communities. And it's not as um, precious, I guess. When you learn about what formed these musicians and where they came out of, it just adds another element to their playing, I guess. Yeah. Coltrane's a good example of that because there's this video footage. I forget what it's from. I think it, it was a documentary. I don't know if it was PBS or whatever it was back in the, you know, I think the late 60s, early 70s. And it was about Alice Coltrane. And there's a bunch of video footage, like film footage of her at the house. In I've seen that. Yeah, with the kids running around and her driving the car. Yeah. And it's just, it's really incredible to see the musician, the artist who is revered in retrospective, maybe not in her time, but regardless in that environment and to think, oh, that's the house and that's the room upstairs where he went and wrote Love Supreme, <laughs> you know, and sequestered away and, and practiced hours on end. And it's just a very humanizing element to think about like, where did John Coltrane practice for eight hours a day? And like, what did that mean to the other people? What were they, or Frank Zappa? You can't read anything about Zappa and, and not come across the fact that like he lived in that basement and like his, what was his family going through it's a real physical place. It's not some ephemeral abstract place. Like this was a man who got up in the morning, drank coffee, went downstairs and emerged two days later. So with all that said, what does that mean? Practically speaking, right? Like, so you're three musicians who love music and love disparate other musicians, and you're coming together to make music. How do stories manifest? Can you take this out of the realm of philosophical for me and talk a little bit about how it informs your music? Sure. Uh, I could be very like pragmatic and say, well, if I hear something I, I like, I try to just do my version of it right away. And I don't think that hard about it. I don't really fret about, as we get older, you fret less and less about, oh, should I like this? Should I not like this? Whatever it is I like, I just want to do my version of that. And then usually that is more of a like composing project for me. I'm not a composer, like, I'm not a big C composer. You know, I'm just at the piano playing things I like and finding something. And then when I find something that is more or less in a presentable form, when the moment is right to present it to the band, it gets presented. Not much talk about it. Just kind of play it down, see if it goes. And if it goes, there's this layer of something that spoke to me. Some person's something. Some human besides me and my 
desire to be in music. There's some human behind that mm. that motivated me to write that. So on this album, we have the piece that we call Sam Cooke. And that is exactly how that came together. Just kind of me just listening to the, oh dear, I'm going to get the name wrong. The name of his gospel quartet. Was it the Soul Stirrers? Yeah. Soul Stirrers? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Just listening to that and just thinking, wow, man, they just sound so good. And it's really simple. Anybody could enjoy this. Anybody could like this. Can I write a song like that? Not really, but I wrote something and so there it is. But the whole story is to not story in terms of one day, this and this, but a lot happened to direct me to Sam Cook. There are people that pushed me towards that. He himself, there's quite a story to his life. So there's all of that's present. None of it's really talked about when we're rehearsing it too, but it's all acknowledged around it. So I hope that was, so that's the story. I hope that was direct and yeah, no, that's really helpful. And it's a great example because that's very specific. Song titles are interesting in how they can function that way. For people that have listened to this podcast, I talk a lot with instrumental musicians about the role of song titles. And it's really interesting because sometimes I will talk to a instrumental musician who will say, the song titles don't really mean anything. We just come up with them afterwards. It's a word salad. And if it's fun or maybe the song's evocative or it's silly, like, well, you know, that's cool. Other times, it's very much narrative driven. You know, I wanted to tell a story with this song and this is the title of the story or this is the theme of the story. In the case of your very specific example of Sam Cooke, it's all, it, to me what I'm hearing, and I'm glad to be wrong, but what I'm hearing you say is it's, it almost serves as like a prompt, a prompt yeah, or a musical a band. Or, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And so you don't have to be literal about Sam Cooke, but it's like, what does the idea of Sam Cooke mean while we're the three of us are in this room? It's it's totally the prompt, but it's very it's coming from a a love place, a fan place, you know. Prompts that's what actors do, right? They have like for an acting class, you know what I mean? But that's what it is, as long as everyone understands just how into this we all are. Sam Cook is a lot more than a prompt for me. But that, <laughs> that's very much but that is very much what was happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a framing device or something. Framing device. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true for a lot of our titles actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you start with a title? Yeah, or, or that prompt. And the title is just the signifier of the prompt or whatever, the inspiration or whatever. I think the other part of this then is talking about outside stuff coming from outside of us in, but also our experience as a trio and our experience playing together and rehearsing and talking about music is a lot of sharing of our personal perspectives about our teachers, about the people that we admire, the people we grew up with, the things that are going on in our lives in any moment. Often our rehearsals are us getting together and we talk until music is happening. Yeah. And it's a natural extension of the conversation. For me, I really feel this thing about playing with Noah and Vin in particular, right? We know a lot more about each other than just what it's like to play together. And that's as much or more important than what the songs are or what the material is. And we often improvise material with no song form. And we have 30 original songs that are part of the band's book. And so we have this big catalog and spring of things to draw upon. And because we're doing that as people, 
and not as hired guns or not as, I don't know, some kind of abstraction, we become our own little micro community, right? And yeah. from there, we can invite people in that we're interested in sharing with and hearing from them. And so that's a big part of our dynamic as well. We'll be back with more Spotlight On after this break. If you're enjoying this conversation, please visit the show notes in your podcast app. They're packed with links to resources that will take you deeper into the people and topics explored here. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. There's a sensitivity that you are all speaking to about the world around you and interaction with each other and interaction with other art. I'm curious about the role of place. And I arrived at that question for you guys, one, because of this recurring theme of community and, and other people and, and interfacing and interaction, but also because I think you're from interesting places originally. I, I assume I got the biographies right, but like Utica, New York is an interesting place. It's a, it has a rich history and it has really good food. Um, Berkeley just using Berkeley as a word conjures up wherever you are, whatever you're bringing to it, you're probably, you probably don't have a neutral feeling about that. And I'm sorry, Caleb, your biography is much more mysterious. You're just like, you're in New York. So <laughs> I, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay, then you're into the Berkeley of the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. So anyway, I, I struggle because I don't want to keep you in this realm of philosophy and etherealness, but I'm curious if each of you could maybe talk a little bit about your background in terms of where'd you come from? Where'd you come from musically? What was that flower bed that you sprouted in of music? And was it at all related to where you were? Sure. Yeah, I'm from Berkeley, California. Neither of my parents were musicians, but they were big lovers of music and art in general and really supported me and also my younger brother is a saxophone player. They just really encouraged both of us to continue playing and exploring music. I just went to public schools, but I was really fortunate to in Berkeley High School. There's a long lineage of great musicians who came from that high school. So I was surrounded by incredibly talented and driven musicians from a young age. And it was pretty daunting for sure. And there's a lot to live up to, but it was also inspiring. And a lot of my friends were musicians. So I, I think that I just enjoyed playing music because it meant that I was hanging out with my friends. Did you grow up with a pop tradition or were, was, were you exposed to jazz early on? Uh, both. I started playing electric bass and I was really into uh, alternative rock and punk and rap. Probably by eighth grade, I got into jazz and also classical music. My first jazz albums were um, very tall. Oscar Peterson trio with Milt Jackson. Mm. And uh, I love Supreme. <laughs> Both on compact disc. My dad had a ton of records and tape cassettes of a lot of jazz musicians. And my mom really likes country and folk music, stuff like that. So, you know, I was around it from an early age. It's interesting to me because at the risk of reducing what you've said, I hear a Bay Area answer, right? A lot of alternative indie rock, hip hop. The only thing you didn't say was like some kind of greasy East Bay funk. <laughs> right. I was, but you're a bass player. So 
I know I was a little after like the East Bay funk scene. So I, obviously there was great music there and I saw Tower of Power growing up, but, <laughs> but I wasn't like deep in that scene. Yeah. I mean, uh, some of my earliest concerts were Green Day, Tower of Power, Primus, which is also like a Bay Area and with Les Claypool, who's an incredible electric bass oh, yeah. player. Yeah. And then a bunch of like local rap artists and um, then, yeah, going to Yoshi's a lot, which was, the, is the jazz club in the Bay Area. I saw Ray Brown there. I was playing electric bass and my dad took me to see a Brown trio with Gene Harris and um, I guess Jeff Hamilton. And I just remember thinking like how cool the bass looked and like Ray Brown playing in. I was like, oh, this is cool. Just like his presence on stage, I think convinced me to play double bass nice what's your version of that vince because a real family experience for me my father is a drummer never a committed professional that's how he's paying the bills he never did that he would play gigs when that came up but that was never his job description he was he's a teacher was a teacher retired and then my mom was a music lover. She actually used to do sound for his bands. And she has this, she's very good with intention and like she's very sophisticated ear. Anyway, so it's a super family thing and it goes into grandparents and it goes into uncle and it goes into great uncles. This is a fairly stereotypical sort of Italian American. And at my house, music was number one. Drums were number one. The drums were always set up. Modern Drummer Magazine showed up. There were always concerts on. I mean, it was heaven. It was great. So at some point, I just was like, I guess I now do this too. As a teenager, Utica, New York, and the whole upstate New York region is not a very populated region in the last 20 years, but there is a long tradition of just music being part of life up there. And I got a great teacher after I was too cool to study with my father. His name was Rick Compton. Just like to say his name any chance I get. And then met a, a few local jazz musicians, older people my father's age, people like Rick Montalbano and Nick Bernola, who was very, very well known. I didn't ever do a gig with him. I would sit in with him sometimes, but I heard him play a lot. And just a wonderful local scene. It seemed like I could go hear good players. Joe Magarelli, great trumpet player from Syracuse, New York. He was living in. New York, of course, at that time, but he'd come up and play. It was wonderful just hearing this great music and going to jazz camps. And of course, I had just the support of my family. It was nothing to be into jazz and drums. You know, one thing led to another and realized that if I wanted to do this on a higher level, that it would be necessary to leave Utica, which was... What am I trying to say? I love Utica. I was there quite a bit this summer. I love seeing... The musicians that are around and connecting with teachers, it's, it was no like time to get out of here. What that bad? It was like time to move on. Bigger opportunities. Bigger opportunities. Yeah. And went to music school and so on. So sense of place is hugest for me. Is that's maybe single element because music is just such a, is so just located within my nuclear family and then the wider family. It's just, well, that's what it's all about. That's what it was all about. Appreciate that. And Caleb, how about you? What's, what's your version of this? 
in high school, I started studying with a local player named Vincent York, who was a very important teacher to me. And in retrospect, even more important because I was studying with a real jazz musician, with somebody who played with heavy cats, really loves the music and really is eager to share it. But before that, as a kid, my dad had some pretty interesting records, Rasan Bright Moments and classic other records. I think my first CD was a Rasan Verve Jazz Masters collection, maybe Lou Donaldson Blues Walk. And I had a Maceo Parker record, Mo Roots. Some nice taste in there. Yeah, so, they're good. They're really good records. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I want to hear these now. Oh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and my grandfather, my mom's father, was a saxophone player for a lot of his life as, as a hobbyist mostly. But he grew up in Brooklyn and he played in the Catskills in the summer and he played in like a community big band after he retired. And I didn't hear him play other than when I was at his house. We played together a little bit after I started playing. But he gave me my first saxophone and sent me CDRs of records that he liked of Duke Ellington and Johnny Hodges and Ellington and Coltrane. And nice. So I had this, some input but the other thing that happened is that in high school, I got really into a band I had with my friends, a ska band, and I really learned what it was like to be in a band. And it reminded me, I think, a little bit of being on a team. I used to like to play baseball, but I like to collaborate with people. And there's something about that, the feeling of that band. We were teenagers and we were silly. And we're really silly and all of that. But it's not so different from what Ember is doing in terms of just connection and working together to create something that feels good to us and we care about. And so I carried that with me from then, having bands through college and music school and after I moved to New York. I, I think the, the only other thing to say is that I also got lucky that I had many teachers that really loved music. And however they were able to share it with me, they did. And especially looking back, I can see some of the teachers who were less hands-on, how important it was to spend time with them. When I was in graduate school, I studied with Mulgrew Miller in New Jersey. He was not a very direct teacher, but spending time with him was spending time with a true master, just to see how he was like and how he would talk to you and how he would talk to everyone, how he would talk to the other teachers and the other musicians. Yeah, real appreciation for those people that gave me access to that. Because I also feel like that experience of learning from them and learning about music opened my reality up and totally changed what was possible for me in my life. Not that my life was so dark or bleak before without music, but just emotionally and experience of life, music has given me more than I ever would have asked for. Amen. Through, through relationships, right? Through relationships with people like these fine gentlemen and with myself in terms of learning what it takes to find my own place here. Yeah. You bring me to the topic of Ember, which was very gracefully done. Thank you. Cause I, that was where I wanted to get specific about next. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and I'm not sure who to direct it to. So please forgive me if anybody feels more strongly about answering this, please hop in. What's the importance of having a band name versus operating under the three last names. That, that's so, it's because of the way you arrived at the band name and had worked together previous, it's so intentional or it reads as so intentional. And I'm so curious about the context and the why for that. 
It took us a while to come to that because as you can probably glean from our song title discussion, like we're very serious about words and about titles and all this stuff. And so, yeah, it took us a while to get there. It is a practical reason that because we couldn't be Curtis Garabedi and Speraza in any kind of way. Yeah, that's tough. People would say, well, what's your band? And you would say, you just mumble it out of your mouth, like ashamed, you know? And because they can't spell any of the names and it's like a hundred letters long and you just can't get there. The upside being if you do spell it right and you get there, then you can find us quite easily online. (laughs) But Ember, we did a lot of brainstorming to get there and a little more crowded in terms of that word being used in the world. But I think it describes something about us that we care about that we're the beginning of the fire or something, you know, or like, yeah. uh, Amber, like the Ember is still burning. We're still here doing the thing that we're going to do. There's many ways, like there's all of this music before and during us. And here we are down there in the mix, like, or we're a small piece of a bigger hole or it's red hot or there's, it just ended up really feeling like there are so many ways to connect to it. I think once we found it, it was a pretty easy sell within the band, but it took us a while. There was something else I read that I didn't want to make an assumption that I understood what it meant. So at the risk of sounding stupid, I'm just going to be vulnerable and ask you, what is the meaning of non-hierarchical playing? Yeah, that's that's Uh, great. It's great. great. You know, um, it sounds so significant. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't sound trivial. Yeah. Yeah, Caleb plays one note at a time in a register and on an instrument that you're it's like a spotlight is on it every time he plays. That's the nature of a wind instrument, of a horn. That's what's happening. I'm a huge Caleb fan. I want to hear him solo all the time. I was listening to Heat Map yesterday just because I love Caleb. But that's not the band. I mean, it is in the sense that, okay, Caleb is going to solo it. And no one I love to play in the rhythm section. We love the setup of music because that makes for good music. However, as we move forward in the music, as we move forward in our careers, the understanding is that this is, we see each other as equals. If Caleb's playing, I want to hear him play. I want the spotlight on him. It's not about that. It's that I'm not the drummer. I'm not just the drummer in the band. I love being the drummer in the band. That's what I do. It's not that that job isn't good enough, but that's just not what this is. It's not the hierarchy of, well, the main event is the saxophone solo, and then the bass is sort of important, and then the drums. Almost no one thinks like that anymore anyway. But that's there is something about that is still real for people. Like I said, most people, especially in music, don't really think like that anymore. So... This is not the Caleb Curtis trio. This is not the Noah Garabedian trio. And it's, and it's not the Vinny Sparaza trio. And it's not, oh, this is the saxophone feature, even though it totally is, and we love the saxophone feature. It's, this is the band is taking a saxophone solo. And now the band is taking a drum solo. The band is taking a bass solo. I like that. If one of those ideas that has essentially no, essentially nothing changes, when you put that idea in your head, essentially nothing is different and somehow everything feels a little different. But nothing different to an outsider. This is the way I think of it. <laughs> and 
I'm out front. So, but I don't think of it as accompaniment, right? Vin and Noah are not accompanying the saxophone. Like we are, the band is playing. The balance of that can go up and down and can shift and the spotlight can be in one place a little more than another, but we're not taking turns. Right, right, right. You know, it's not, it's not my turn, then your turn. And then, and while it's your turn, we support you. It's not that. It also means that nobody has, like the roles are not defined in a specific grid. We can play however we want at any time. The only thing that we all know the everyone else is going to do is support the music. Yeah. So whatever the music needs, that's what we're going to do. And it gives us freedom because we know that we're not the accompanist for the others, that we can do whatever we want. I'm not worried that if I change horses in the middle of the stream, you know, that I'm going to upset somebody, right? Because they have some narrative that, that I'm going to break and it's going to disrupt the path that some genius who's in front of the band has decided. I don't mean it that way. That's someone who's in front yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. the band leader has decided it will be a certain way. And that's the way it goes. You're not encroaching on somebody else's agenda or no. ideal. No, yeah. no. And so we're, we just, it's just an open space for everyone to be equals. It's like harmelotics. Yeah. yeah. I think the other idea is that there's a lot of music to be made simultaneously. It's a collective experience of making music together at the same time where we can all be as loud or as quiet as we would like to be to support the moment. And the simultaneous expression is one of great history and tradition in the music that we, in a lot of the music that we like. Yeah. I also really don't like it when people connect the words jazz and democracy. For me, having non-hierarchical is great. Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind me double-clicking on that? What, what gets under your craw with that? I don't like the word jazz anyways. And then like democracy. Yeah, that's fair. Jazz is not a democracy if you like look into that. At least that's not the type of democracy that I want to exist in. I feel like when you hear people say jazz is a democracy, they're talking about jazz in a very traditional formulaic sense. That's not the type of music I want to be a part of or the type of democracy I want to be a part of. What you guys have said in the last few minutes that brings me back to an experience I had while I was listening to the music. I hope the comparison doesn't chafe anyone. There's an album I've loved for years and years, decades at this point. Joe Henderson, The Village Vanguard from the mid-80s. And it's a trio. And it's Ron Carter and I think Al Foster. Yes. Yep. And um, <laughs> I heard, not in any way of like an aping or a copying, but I heard moments of that style of interplay on your album. And when Vince was explaining his answer around the idea of the band, if Joe Henderson's name wasn't on that, if it was a band name, it would make just as much, if not more sense. Like that, that is not a saxophone trio record. That is a band record. It really is. It's such a beautiful, beautiful record. And they support each other. There's so much wonderful bass work on it. That was really the experience I had in listening to your album. I heard it as a band record. I guess I'm congratulating myself for hearing your intention. <laughs> Sorry about that. I didn't realize that's what no. I was doing. Yeah, that's a high compliment. Yeah. Um, well, one thing we're talking about is the difference between having a leader and not having a leader. Like if this was the Caleb Curtis trio, we would do things differently, right? There are different people in the Caleb Curtis trio. 
there's different people in the Vinny Sparasa band. You know, there's different people in the Noah Gary Beatty and Quartet. And we are all capable of being those people in each other's bands. But this band is not that. And it's finding our common ground, pushing and pulling each other and ceding space to everyone or amplifying each other's instincts or whatever. The Joe Henderson trio, he picked who was in that band. We didn't really pick who's in this band. <laughs> like the band kind of happened. It kind of came together. And it's not that Vin one day said, hey, I want to have a band with you and Noah. And then we had to convert it into a collective. Like it, it happened because we knew each other and we were playing together. And it felt like, hey, you know what? Maybe there's some legs here. We should, uh, we should explore this. Yeah. Well, listen, our time together is reaching its end, but I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you guys for being such willing participants. A lot of my line of inquiry was a layer removed or abstracted from the music itself. But, um, but you, you put so many interesting statements out there into the ether. They felt like they needed to be responded to and threads needed to be pulled on. So thank you for meeting me there. Those are the threads we care about. They are the music. They, to us, they're not a layer removed. No, what do you want to talk about? Bass drums? I mean, yeah, I love bass drums. I mean, just, yeah, yeah. That'll be our next hour together. We're, we're, yeah. We can go look at the Peraza bass drum pedal collection. And, uh, that didn't happen. That's what I'm saying. I want to see the reads. I want to see all of your reads. Yeah, which, <laughs> yeah sir. You know, they're right here. They're right next to me. <laughs> Lawrence, do you mind? I want to shout out my teachers, like when Vin and Caleb were Please. talking earlier. Cause, and I totally forgot to do that. So I just want to shout out my early teachers. Peter Affelbaum, Jessica Jones, Glenn Richmond, Charles Hamilton, and Dana Stevens. So that's, that's for them. That's wonderful. That's great. Thank you so much. And good luck with the upcoming gigs. And um, what a wonderful record. That's a standout for me. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you very much. much. Thank you so much, Ember, Caleb Wheeler-Curtis, Noah Garabedian, and Vincent Speranza. You can hear more from them at the end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe stay in touch.
Thank you. 